Welcome to Women Worth Knowing, the new title for the podcast hosted by Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. Women Worth Knowing is not affiliated, associated, authorized, endorsed by, or in any way officially connected with the website Women You Should Know. Welcome to Women You Should Know. And Jasmine has got an extra special woman. Mm-hmm. I was just looking her up on Google this morning just so I'd be up on our conversation because <laughs> I actually have never, ever read about Ann Judson before. Really? No, I've Ooh. read about Adoniram. Yep, yep. And as I said, you know, he did marry three times. Yes, We're yes. going to talk about wife number one. In succession, not at once. <laughs> That's true. He was not a polygamist, but in succession. Um, he was one of the very first missionaries, right? Yes, yes. And so Adoniram and Anne, they're kind of considered like the, I don't know, the father and mother of American missions because they were the first foreign missionaries from America, technically. Yeah, foreign. So, don't you love that? Yes. Foreign, foreign missionaries. Foreign missionaries. Americans. They, yes, they were. I know, right? Um, but there, well, I think also they do they do say that partly because there was uh, missionary activity among the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. So like the American Indians, they were right, doing like missionary work there, but not over away from America. So, yes. So, you know, what's interesting, though, is that most of the missionary activity was coming from England, probably uh, Mm -hmm. with William Carey. Yes, exactly. But even way before that, you had people like um, St. Patrick that were missionaries. Of course, Paul went on a missionary journey. Paul was a missionary. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But it's true. Most of them were in the early years coming from Europe. We've talked about several of those already. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So you, you have some like you know, Adoniram Judson and mm-hmm. some of these um, who was one of the first ever mm-hmm. from America mm-hmm. to sail overseas. Yes, and I think that's, exactly. you know, going overseas is, is big. That but, was big. <laughs> all right. I can't wait to hear this story because his life was not easy. But exactly. you're going to be talking about Thailand. Formerly Burma. Now, right. yes, exactly. Right. And then when I, on our next podcast, mm. I'm going to be bringing up Burma and Thailand, too. Hey, so. we've got a little teaser there. Yes, we do. <laughs> so, all right. Tell us about Anne Judson. Okay. Anne. So, Anne, like I said, she and her husband were the first foreign foreign missionaries overseas. And I look at her kind of as the mother of modern missions just in general because— Adoniram was the first American, but he wasn't the first male missionary. You know, like you mentioned, William Carey, uh, he is considered kind of the father of all modern missions. But Anne really, I think, is the mother of missions because she was the first woman who really inspired those after her to think like, wow, I as a woman, I could go out on the mission field, too. You know, at first there were married women because she was married, but then single women started to think maybe I could go on the mission field as well. And so she inspired an entire generation after her. And so I appreciate her for that. And honestly, I know we call everybody our favorites, but there's something really special to me about Adoniram and Anne. Their story is, it kind of is my favorite. If somebody asked you who's your favorite missionary, they're probably the first ones that come to mind, although a bunch of other people would eventually. (laughs) But I just really love these guys. So Anne, she was born in Massachusetts, Bradford, Massachusetts, and her family was rather unconventional. They were considered liberal in that day, but we're talking like early Puritan. I mean, you know, I don't know how liberal you really could be in a Puritan household, (laughs) but 
for that, you know, maybe you didn't burn witches. Yeah, that, maybe that. They were really yeah, edgy maybe that were like, way. You know what? I don't think that woman's a witch after all. Let's let her live go. Live and let live. That's pretty right. crazy. I know. They didn't really do a good job of live and let live in the Puritan settlements. but <laughs> No, because, you know, it was Massachusetts where oh, gosh, the, yeah. the witch trials. Yes, in Salem. And yeah. some craziness took place. Oh, wow. So yeah. I think probably when we're using the word liberal, it means that they were balanced. Yes, they didn't go in possible. for that fanaticism. Yes, exactly. And just so rigid. So right. exactly. You know, again, they were a little more on the unconventional side in their area. She was the youngest of four girls. She was the baby. And according to everyone in the neighborhood, she was so spoiled. I guess all the neighbors, everybody in town just looked at Anne and kind of rolled their eyes like, oh, she's just the little spoiled brat of the family. And she kind of was. She was able to, like, charm her way out of getting in trouble all the time. And... Okay, but we're talking, what, 17? Yeah, okay. This is, okay, yeah. So this is early, late 1700. So she yeah, was born in 1789. The... Okay, yeah. We're talking turn of the century. Yeah. So how so, bratty could she be? Right, right. I mean, <laughs> you don't have plumbing, indoor plumbing. You don't have electricity. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. She couldn't have been too much of a prima donna. So she was not a gamer. We know that. Yep. Not, no, she wasn't like that. She wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) But she did, you know, she was very stubborn. And like Mm -hmm. I said, she could get her, worm her way out of trouble. Her dad doted on her Mm -hmm. as the baby of the family. So she did kind of just develop a, no, no one can tell me what to do. Kind of a, kind of an attitude as a young girl. She was also very social. She was a socialite, loved parties and all those kinds of things. And it, and so when her dad converted the second floor of their house into like a ballroom, like a dance hall for other kids to, I don't even know how that would have flown in that environment. Like I said, in a Puritan environment, maybe that's why they were unconventional. But True. Uh, anyway, it just, you know, so they'd have parties and balls and events at their house. And so she just kind of grew up in this environment and loved having a good time, didn't take things very seriously. Well, when she was 16 years old, she was reading a book by Hannah Moore, who was a British abolitionist during that time and author. And so she's reading this book and she comes across, which is actually a scripture. I think, is it in First or Second Timothy, where it says, she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Second Timothy, Second right. Timothy? Yeah. yeah. So she reads that verse. I don't even know if she realized it was a Bible verse because she's just reading it in the book. And it just kind of hits her between the eyes because she lived in pleasure. Mm. And the thought that she would be dead while she was living, she's like, oh, whatever. It bothered her, but she didn't want to be rebuked. And so she threw the book down and decided to read Pilgrim's Progress. Now, I don't know why you would choose Pilgrim's Progress if you don't want to be convicted. (laughs) (laughs) So she reads Pilgrim's Progress and she gets saved, basically. And she gives her life to Jesus. You know, before this, she was just thinking like, ah, whatever. I'm, you know, obviously she's a nominal Christian growing up in a Puritan community. But now she realizes like, Jesus is my Lord. And she really, you know, it was a really pretty radical conversion. It wasn't just a acknowledgement and a salvation. It was a surrender. And she really, at that time, just said, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life. And he's going to take her up on it a few years down the road here. <laughs> so she gets serious about her life a little bit more now. And she'd been well-educated. She'd been really blessed with a good education. And she decided, I better put this to use. She became a school teacher. And it was around that time. So she's about 21 years old now. And she meets, dun, 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 Adoniram Judson. Okay, but 21 is considered pretty old. Yeah, at that point, yeah. She'd been teaching for a few years. In those days. Well, I think they became teachers at 16 or 17 years old. So she, yeah, she was a very accomplished woman. She was a career woman. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) She didn't have time for marriage before 21. Right. So she meets Adoniram and they were like two peas in a pod because he was super stubborn and super feisty 
like she was, also brilliant. They were both very, very clever and intellectual. So and that he was sort of only a, thing. a year older than she was. He yeah, was he born was just, in 19, I mean, 1788. 1788. She was born 1789. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we're looking at, you know, we're heading into the turn of the century now, right? into the 19th century. Yeah. So they're about this, roughly the same age. She was about a year older. And he had gone down his own road. I just kind of want to tell the story because oh, I think yes. it's just this yes, little yes, snippet yes, yes. about how he got saved. Yes. So Adoniram was, uh, he grew up in a Christian home like Anne, but again, he was stubborn. He wanted to do things his own way. And he was also very intellectual. So when he went off to college, he became a deist because deism was all the rage at this time. This is during the French Enlightenment. And everybody is all about reason and not faith and only, you know, backwater people believe in Christianity anymore. Educated people are deists where we believe that there is a a God, but he allows us to do all of the work. We, you know, we rule um, a good, just society based on human reason. We don't need God. So there's this, you know, he kind of adopted this because it appealed to the intellectual mind that we are smart enough to do everything on our own. And so (laughs) he practices this for a while, graduates college, can't figure out what to do with his life. And so he's kind of wandering around. And one night he, um, oh, I forgot to mention, he had this friend who had kind of helped convert him to deism. His name was Jacob Eames. They were in school together. They were like best friends, inseparable. So they have to go their separate ways when they graduate from school. And so Adoniram tries being a playwright and a school teacher. And he just is a kind of a rolling stone. And one night he's staying in a hotel, well, an inn, I guess you would say back then. He's laying there trying to get some sleep that night. And the walls are real thin. And he can hear on the other side of the wall, this man groaning in agony, just like, I mean, I Yeah. I don't want to know. It's just gross, right? I mean, just hearing this guy, like, I don't know if he was throwing up. I don't know what was happening. But Adoniram was getting kind of, like, disturbed and wondering, like, man, I can't wait till they invent insulation in buildings so that we don't have to deal with this. <laughs> he can't sleep. And he starts to just sit there and think as he, you know, as you do when you're, you know, it's late at night and you, you know, your mind kind of just starts racing and thinking about all these things you normally wouldn't think about. And he just starts thinking about, this man who sounds like he's dying in the next room and he starts having very morbid thoughts about death. And then he starts thinking about his Christian family and what if they were right? And Jesus really is God and I've rejected him. What if I died? Would I go to hell? So he starts having all of these thoughts about eternal things. And then finally, but then he starts thinking about his friend, Jacob Eames. And he's just like, oh my gosh, if Jacob was here right now, he would laugh and he would say, what an idiot. What are you talking about, Adoniram? You're not, you don't want to give in to all of those superstitions and fears and that sort of a thing. And so he kind of tried to shake it off and fell asleep for a little while, got up in the morning and came downstairs to talk to the innkeeper and be like, hey, what was going on in the next room? That was pretty intense. I mean, this guy was definitely not well. Is he okay? And the innkeeper said, well, you won't believe what happened. That guy, and he's actually pretty young like you, sir. He ended up dying during the night. And Adoniram was kind of shocked, like, wow, well, it sounded like he was dying, but I didn't think that would actually happen. For some reason, Adoniram asked him, well, who was he? Who was this guy? And the innkeeper looked him up in the little, you know, guest guest register. And he said, oh, his name was Jacob Eames. So Adoniram's best friend was in the next room. He didn't even know it. The deist. The deist. And he had died. And this rocked Adoniram's world. And so he began to really realize, okay, that was not a coincidence that I was thinking about Jesus, that I was having all of, you know, these thoughts and doubts and you know, that my friend was in there. I mean, he just realized, he saw very clearly this was the hand of God. And so it took a little while, but shortly after that, he made a full surrender like Anne had done. So getting back to Anne, (laughs) 
he's saved and he felt God was calling him to become America's first foreign missionary. And he really had a heart to go to Burma because he had read a little pamphlet about Burma. And it was just kind of emblazoned in his mind. I have to go there. So then right after this, he meets Anne. And it's love at first sight. He just adores her instantly. And so after only a month of knowing her, and this would have been like not even hanging out. It's not like they went on dates. They didn't do that back then. He might be saw her at a few social functions. He didn't know her very well at all. But after a month, he asked her dad for her hand in marriage. And I've got to read this letter to you, this little part of his letter uh, to that he wrote to the dad because it was just pretty radical. This is how he asked for Anne's hand in marriage. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, and every kind of want and distress, degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. We'll just throw that in. So, <laughs> yeah, what father would say no to that? I mean, my goodness. Yes. I, that's just like, wow, sweep the dad off his feet, too, yes, right? right? So, <laughs> anyways. I think that's one of the most one of the more miraculous moments in this story is the fact that her dad said yes, mm-hmm. that he said, well, actually, what he said was ask Anne. I probably would have too. like, I don't know. I mean, if she's down, I guess. Anyway, that would have floored me, too, if I was, you know, in his shoes. So <laughs> Anne agrees. The neat thing about this is, again, because Anne had made that surrender to the Lord before she even met Adoniram several years er- earlier, she really felt like even though she obviously liked him and was you know, interested in him. Uh, she also felt like this was a call from God. And she knew she had to take that into consideration because he was very upfront. We're going on the mission field. It's going to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I love that as a team, they both made that decision. Yes, I am willing to do this and go Especially here with you. Especially in those days. Because oh goodness, women's yes. opinion or what they wanted was not really taken into consideration. Yes. Yes. Also, you know, women were considered the weaker, which mm-hmm. we are the weaker vessel. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't considered fit for foreign missions at yeah. all, too. Yeah, so that's a great point. They yeah. go to Burma. Now, I was reading, too, that it was, I can't remember, but some kind of organization mm-hmm. told them that the Buddhist Burmese would never get saved. I mean, they told them it's never mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The very area they're moving into, it's not going to happen. Can you imagine if your missionary board is telling you, go ahead, but you're not going to have but any not success? Work. Well, and even when, you know, because when they went, when they left, they left February 5th, 1812. They headed over. But they stopped over in India, and William Carey himself even told them. Yes, the missions board was, you know, maybe hesitant. But William Carey himself, who'd been in India, here's the father of missions, you know, the example to all these other people. And he's telling them, Burma's too hard, guys. Mm -hmm. My son tried to go there. He had to pull out. It didn't work out very well. I mean, how discouraging would that be? And so this is where it really just goes to show we really need to hear from God. Because even the most well-intended people, godly people— might offer, like, throw out an opinion or advice that isn't really what the Lord, you know, is telling you. And mm-hmm. so it's really important to hear from God. And fortunately, they did. Now, they did have some hoops to get through because they actually almost got deported out of India before they even made it to Burma. They almost got deported. They ended up escaping over to Mauritius, which is off the coast of Africa. I don't even know. That's just another random episode. Finally, about a year later, they end up in Burma. And it was a really gnarly place, as you just said. It really was a hard field. I mean, it's true what the board had said, what William Carey said. It was hard ground. But that doesn't mean it was impossible for God. I remember Lilius Trotter even saying that, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, the soil might look dry and dead, but it's it's not. There's a seed in there that's going to sprout. 
And that is exactly how the Judsons felt. In fact, Anne said, she said this, she said, we cannot expect to do much in such a rough, uncultivated field, but if we may be instrumental in removing some of the rubbish and preparing the way for others, that will be a sufficient reward. That was their perspective to just trailblaze, even if we don't get all the glory and all of the, and see all the fruit. That's kind of like a prophet too. I mean, remember mm, how when God called Isaiah, he said, you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And you're going to speak, but they're not going to hear. Yeah, totally. Their ears are going to be dull and they won't receive it. And I, I think about how many prophets, even Jeremiah, was yes, like, yes, you're not going to have any success, but you say the word anyway. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. they're going, knowing it's for the next generation and they're going to plant, yes. even though they don't. I mean, can you imagine if you said, go church plant, but nobody will come to the Lord. <laughs> You'll spend all these years there. But the next people after you, they'll have like, all this success. Fruit. Yep. Yes, totally. It's so difficult. It's really, it really was an act of faith. You know, I think of, yeah, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of Hebrews 11, where it right. says these all died in faith, not having received the right. promises. And right. it's like, that's exactly what these guys were willing to do. And so Anne and Adoniram, they went into it with that mindset. And I just think it's, wow, what beautiful faith they had. And it was challenging. The Buddhist people, it, it was very difficult to reach them and to figure out how can we present the gospel in a way that connects with the culture? Plus, and, they had to learn the Burmese language. Yes. And, and go ahead. Oh, and the writing, the right. translation work for Adoniram was, it looks impossible. If you look at a page of Burm, of the Burmese Bible that he eventually translated, it looks like a bunch of little half circles and scribbles. There's They don't have um, punctuation, paragraph structure, sentence structure like we do. Plus, I read that he knew Latin, Greek, he knew all mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. Western languages, could speak like five languages. Yes, yes. And I mean, he was just so good at languages. But when he went to study Burmese, because the whole basis of their language was so different. Completely, yep. And Judson actually learned the language before he did. Yes, and that was what was so fun. She learned two languages, She too. was Siamese, yep, yes. she was amazing. So she actually, yeah, so he, because I think it's partly too, because he was trying to translate. Right. So he spent a lot of time on his own, like with the written form mm-hmm. of the language. Anne's out in the villages talking to people. She became fluent way before him. She's able to just converse with people regularly. And it was just really pretty remarkable what she was able to do. Like I said, they, they had their trials, not just with the language, but they didn't get any letters from home for three years. They didn't have any converts. Nobody got saved for five years until they figured out a way to meet the Burmese in a, a cultural format that was more Conducive. Yeah, conducive. That was, yeah, more accessible for them. They, mm-hmm. they built this structure called the Zayat that they were able to meet them at and stuff. And so that began to bring some fruit. They lost uh, children. In fact, all of their children died young. She had a stillborn baby right when they landed, which mm. was just devastating. And then another baby died at eight months. But Anne, she was just a rock star. When the baby died, this is what her biographer said. In her sorrow, she launched a school for Burmese girls, wrote a simple catechism in Burmese, and began translating the book of Jonah because she thought it would be easy to translate. Mm. Which is crazy. The neat thing about this, and I like that the biographer bring this, brings this out, Anne had a lot of sorrow. She had mm-hmm. a lot of really hard things to work through. This was very, we very challenging. We about the no, hardest the prison. Place. Oh, my gosh. But— I love that, you know, I thought of that verse where it says, we sorrow, but not as those who don't have hope. Right. And so she found a way. Yes. Thank you. She found a way to be like, okay, Lord, how can I turn this sorrow into something for you, for your Mm -hmm. glory and something Mm -hmm. you can use? And the Lord met her. The Lord met her in her sorrow and strengthened and empowered her to do this translation work. You know, she's practically doing what Adoniram was doing. I mean, she was such an amazing helper in that way. So Anne ended up having to go back to the U.S. for a couple of years because she was having some liver trouble. 
And while she while she was away, she actually wrote an account of the Burmese mission, published it and had speaking engagements. And this was when she really kind of, like I said, became the mother of modern missions because she was inspiring all of these folks back home mm-hmm. with what God was doing. And the fact that, again, women could go and serve, it really empowered a lot of, of gals to say, wow, I want to go and serve the Lord overseas too. And so she was very inspirational in this this liver treatment that she needed and this health issue ended up being a time of great fruitfulness for her. So then she goes back to Burma. And by the time she gets back, she and her husband had been in Rangoon. They were on the coast and planting a church there. And the church had, I mean, I wish I could tell you guys this, the stories of the believers there and just how they grew and flourished. But he realized like, okay, this church plant is solid. I can leave them now and move on. And so he had been invited to come near, live near the Royal Court, which was in the town of Ava further inland. And so when Anne came back, he's like, great, we're moving. Come on, we're going to go and get open doors with the government now. I think somebody in the government either got saved or was really open to the gospel. And so it it seemed like the perfect open door opportunity. However, <laughs> right at that time, wouldn't you know it, the British went to war with Burma, Britain and the empire and the colonies, and they were having problems with Burma. So they came to kind of stamp this out. Well, the fact that Anne and Adoniram were white English-speaking people— not like English, were, not British. It, they weren't British, but it didn't matter. Right? Right. It was like, sorry, right. you are, you're one of them. And so they were kind of just targeted as potentially seditious people. Adoniram was actually taken and thrown into a death prison. This was, yeah, this is what you're talking about, the gnarly stuff that happened. So Adoniram gets put in this death prison. Anne wasn't put in prison, but she, you know, had to really mind her P's and Q's. And so she actually was a smart girl, very alert. She went and buried his Burmese Bible translation that he'd been working on all this time. Mm. Uh, she went and hid it, hid a bunch of the family heirlooms and things like that, burned a bunch of their correspondence, which is really sad because we lot a lot, lost a lot of information when she had yes. to burn a lot of their records, yes. sadly. But it was a smart move. And so she basically spent the next several months trying to bargain with the officials to bring in food to Adoniram to try to, you know, she'd go in to try to see him whenever she could. Basically a time of survival. He's being pretty badly treated in the prison. Uh, the one thing that they did that I thought, oh, this sounds absolutely miserable. Every night they would, because all the prisoners were shackled, they'd take all their chains, hook them together on this long pole and raise the pole up in the air. So you had to spend the entire night with your feet in the air and just your head and shoulders on the ground. And sometimes the mosquitoes would come. It was just like, ah, they're attacking you. You can't do anything about it. It was just, it was and rough. how many Ugh. years was he in prison? It was, it was a little, well, actually, it was a little over. I think it was a year and a half, which is feels like an eternity. Mm-hmm. And he was moved from one prison to another. So he started out in a prison that was, like, bad, but then he went to, like, even worse. And they had to take this eight-mile hike through the jungle where a lot of the men died on the way. Adoniram himself contemplated suicide. I mean, he's a great man of faith and a man of God, but he's still just a man. Right. And he and really, it was just the grace of God, I think, that kept him back from doing that because it was such a desperate situation. But he had told Anne, we're getting transferred. Don't even think of following me. But of course, what did she do? Mm-hmm. She followed him there. And Anne at that time, this is crazy. This is stuff It's like, you wouldn't even think to put this in a movie. So she ends up staying in a grain storage area, like kind of like a storage bin. But, you know, there's vermin and rats mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. of this stuff. She contracts, depending on which account you read, she contracted meningitis, smallpox, spotted fever, possibly also dysentery. Also, P.S., she had had a baby. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so she's mm-hmm. bringing the baby with her. It's just insane. And she was so depleted and so weak 
that the prison guards there in the village actually felt bad for them. And they would allow Adoniram every day, basically, they'd keep him shackled, but they would let him go get the baby and take it around the village to be wet nursed by other mm-hmm. women in the village because mm-hmm. Anne mm-hmm. couldn't take care of the baby. She was just so, yes. so ill. So it was just insane, just a crazy time. I just love Anne's fortitude during this whole season. I mean, really, we we say for better or for worse in sickness and in health in our wedding vows. And I'm like, wow, I mean, this is taking it to about as far a degree as you could possibly go. And yet she was willing to do that and had such faith in God in the midst of this. I know I don't have time to read a lot of her quotes and stuff, but oh my goodness. Well, I do want to read one thing. Actually, this is kind of just a, a, a drama, kind of a dramatized version, but it gives us a picture of what happened when he was finally released. So he gets released November of 1825 after over a year in prison. Finally, they let him out because they were negotiating with the British and they wanted Mm -hmm. him to help translate the peace negotiations. And so he gets released and goes to try to find Anne. And this story, I just like gets me every time I got a little choked up this morning when I was reading it. (laughs) One of the most pathetic pages in the history of Christian missions is that which describes the scene when Judson was finally released and returned to the mission house seeking Anne, who again had failed to visit him for some weeks. As he ambled down the street as fast as his maimed ankles would permit, Mm. the tormenting question kept repeating itself, is Anne still alive? Upon reaching the house, the first object to attract his attention was a fat, half-naked Burmese woman squatting in the ashes beside a pan of coals, holding on her knees an emaciated baby, so begrimed with dirt that it did not occur to him that it could be his own. Across the foot of the bed, as though she had fallen there, lay a human object that, at first glance, was no more recognizable than his child. The face was of a ghastly paleness and the body shrunken to the last degree of emaciation. The glossy black curls had been shorn from the finely shaped head. There lay the faithful, devoted wife who had followed him so unwearily from prison to prison, ever alleviating his distresses and consoling him in his trials. Presently, Anne felt warm tears falling upon her face and rousing from her stupor, she saw Judson by her side. Anne had indeed counted the cost and within only a few months after Adoniram was freed, his dear wife Anne died October 24, 1826, to be followed by their daughter Maria in 1827. Yet, Anne left an eternal, indelible legacy. She was the first missionary to learn Siamese and to translate a portion of scripture, the Gospel of Matthew, into that tongue. She also strove to improve the lot of Burmese women who were considered little more than cattle. She missed her family, but she could affirm that, quote, I am happy in thinking that I gave up this source of pleasure and I am happy to labor for the promotion of the kingdom of heaven. And that was her heart right up until the end. And so a beautiful testimony of faithfulness. And the neat thing is their legacy lived on. You know, uh, Adoniram, like you mentioned, he remarried twice. <laughs> and ultimately their ministry did, you know, everything they did, all that, all that groundbreaking work, all that brush clearing led to a mighty work of the Spirit. 63 church plants came mm. out of their ministry, 163 missionaries and Burmese workers. The Burmese Bible was translated as well as numerous gospel tracts. They really trailblazed American missions. And so, like I said, the Judsons were the inspiration for a lot of the future American missionaries that would go out. And so the Lord used them in a mighty, mighty way. And what's amazing, too, is, again, this is territory that people said, you know, you can't reach these people. Yes. And yet these people were reached. But the cost, Mm. there was a, a cost to reaching them. But both Adoniram and Anne were willing to pay that cost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to me, it's amazing that Adoniram, after all that, did not leave Burma. 
Yeah, and he he did. Oh man, that's more of his story too. You you know, right. encourage everyone to read that, like the depression he went into and how the Lord had to lift him out. I mean, it really was. You know, yeah. years ago, I found his book in an old bookstore in England, and I said, "Oh my goodness, first edition!" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh my wow. goodness, this is like a treasure." And I think the guy only wanted two pounds for it. And he says, "Why is this book so special to you?" Mm. And I started telling him the story, and he's like, "Well, I'm not, I'm not religious." I said. <laughs> No, but this book would make you. Yeah. <laughs> it's Absolutely. like such an amazing book. He's like, maybe I shouldn't sell it to you. And I said, maybe you shouldn't. But I did buy it. But it's um, it's such an amazing story. It really, really is. But I'm so yeah. glad that you brought Ann Judson to us. Yes. And that is definitely a woman that everyone <laughs> should know. Agreed. You know, you can Google her. Yes. And you can find out some about her books. Yeah. My Heart in His Hands by Sharon James. Uh, There's also the biographies of Adoniram talk about her pretty extensively as well. If you get one of the, you know, heftier ones. Yes. So the Golden Shore. Aren't you so glad that all these people joined us today on Women You Should Know? (laughs) Thanks again. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women You Should Know with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter or Facebook. If you have a woman we should know about, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at WYSK at CCCM.com. Make sure you've subscribed to this podcast available now on any streaming service. Thank you again for listening to Women You Should Know with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut.